1947, two Bedouin shepherds were searching these cliffs along the Dead Sea. Apparently, they were looking for one of their goats that had gone missing. And as they worked their way across the cliffs, one of the shepherds fell into a cave. And inside that cave, he found some clay jars. Most of the jars were broken. But they contained 11 leather scrolls. The shepherds took them and they managed to sell three of them in the market for a total of seven pounds. But those scrolls turned out to be valuable treasures. Eventually they sold for millions. Today we know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Between 1947 and 1956, scrolls were found in ten more of these caves. And many of them had lain there for over 2,000 years. Those two shepherds found treasure hidden among ugly caves and broken pots. The Apostle Paul wasn't around in 1947, but he had plenty to say about treasure in clay pots. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In the church Bible, you'll find that on page 1160. Second Corinthians 4, and I'll read the first 15 verses. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore have I spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. 
Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. This is God's word. In this passage, Paul talks first about the treasure and then about the clay jars. So first of all, the treasure, a glorious message. That's what the treasure is. In verse 1, Paul talks about this ministry. In the passage we looked at last week, he explains what he means by this ministry. He's talking about the ministry of sharing the good news about Jesus. The good news that through Jesus' death in our place, we can have righteousness, right standing with God. We can be free from the condemnation that our sins deserve. And not only that, when we put our trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, the Holy Spirit goes to work transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, God accepts us as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. He changes us into men and women who display something of his glory in this world. The change might seem slow to us. It might seem even slower to the people around us. But when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, there will be change. That's the Holy Spirit's agenda for our lives. And he does not fail to carry out his agenda. He is God, after all. And Paul is saying he has been given the ministry of announcing all this. And he's thankful to have the honor. In verse 1 he says it's through God's mercy he has this ministry. Paul could still be what he used to be, an enemy and opponent of Jesus. But instead, in God's mercy, he gets to be a messenger for Jesus. Paul believes that his message is glorious. It's about God's greatness and power, shown in lives that are freed and transformed. And so, Paul says... We do not lose heart. We're going to see there were plenty of reasons for Paul to lose heart. Paul is not writing as someone who has it easy. If ever a servant of God had reasons for slacking off or abandoning his duty, it was Paul. But he believed in the glory of his message. And so, in verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is saying that because the message is glorious, we present it faithfully and clearly. Losing heart doesn't always mean that we throw in the towel completely and walk away. Losing heart can result in other less obvious things. It can result in what Paul calls secret and shameful ways. What does he mean? Well, he immediately tells us he means messing around with the message. Using deception or distorting the word of God. That's messing around with the message. 
And this is probably the first sign that we have lost heart in the message God has given us. So long as we believe the message is glorious, we won't tamper with it. But when our faith in the message goes, when we start to believe that it's outdated or that it's ineffective, then we'll start using gimmicks to try and win people to the church. That's an example of what Paul means by deception. I read about one pastor who had a tank driven onto the platform during one of his sermons. Now, apart from the mess that would make of the front door, it can be harmful in much more serious ways. How do you ever follow that? What do you have on the platform the week after the tank? A helicopter? Gimmicks might get people through the doors for a couple of weeks. They might. But unless you keep getting more outrageous with your gimmicks, you won't keep people. Someone has said, what you win them with is what you win them to. If we get people in with gimmicks, then only gimmicks are going to keep them. That's what they're coming for. And sooner or later, even our gimmicks won't be interesting anymore. So using gimmicks to get people in might seem harmless, but it can be a form of deception. We offer people one thing, entertainment, and even though we're really trying to give them something else, we're hoping they'll accept a message that we're really a bit embarrassed about. Paul also talks about distorting the word of God. That's another thing that begins to happen when we begin to lose our faith in the message. We begin to distort it to make it more appealing. So maybe we would stop talking about the fact that without Jesus, we're condemned. We're under God's wrath and we're on our way to hell. Or maybe we'd stop talking about how the Spirit brings transformation in our lives. He makes us people who, for example, delight in God's blueprint for sex and for male and female roles. Steve talked about that last Sunday night. But when we begin to doubt the glory of our message, including God's plan for our lives and relationships, then we start leaving bits of the message out. And that distorts the message. But so long as we continue to believe in the glory of our message, we will present it faithfully and clearly. Or as Paul puts it, the end of verse 2, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But of course, part of the reason we're tempted to mess around with the message is because often the message doesn't seem to be getting any results. But Paul wants us to see that the problem does not lie with the message. The message, the gospel, is glorious. So, Paul says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Paul is saying that because the message is glorious, rejection of the message is due to spiritual blindness. It's not due to some fault in the message itself. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul had a lot to say about veils. Moses wore a veil. The Jews of Paul's day had a veil over their hearts. And here Paul widens it out to all unbelievers. They are spiritually blind. They can't see the truth and the glory of the message of Jesus. That's why they reject it. It's not that the message needs updating or changing. Paul says the devil is pulling the wool over people's eyes. When Paul mentions the God of this age, he means the devil. The New Testament presents God, that's God with a capital G, as being sovereign over all. But it's also true that every man or woman is either in the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan. And this age is another way of referring to Satan's kingdom. Satan is still ultimately under God's sovereignty. But Jesus describes Satan as a strong man who guards his possessions. That's in Luke chapter 11. And in that passage, Jesus also said, He who is not with me is against me. If you're not with Jesus, you might think you're neutral. But actually, Jesus says, you're one of Satan's possessions. And one way Satan guards his possessions is by blinding their minds to the beauty and truth of the gospel. People might think it's their great intelligence that causes them to turn up their nose at the gospel. But Paul says, actually, Satan is blinding those men and women. It's nothing to do with their education or their great brain power. Paul understands the real reason people reject the gospel. And notice what that understanding causes Paul to do. It causes him to keep on putting his confidence in the gospel. Look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, In the face of Christ. Paul's logic goes like this. I know people reject the gospel because they're spiritually blind. But I will keep preaching and sharing the gospel message. Because that's what God uses to take away spiritual blindness. Paul knows that it takes a new work of creation before a blinded sinner can hear about Jesus And see God's glory displayed in Jesus. He quotes here in verse 6 from Genesis chapter 1. God's creation of the world. And Paul's point is, it takes just as much of a divine work to enable you and I to see spiritually as it took for God to bring light out of darkness way back at creation. Back in Genesis, it was a light in the sky. Now God's creative work enables us to hear about Jesus and know that the person we're hearing about 
is not just a good man, not just a wise teacher, but that he has all the glory of God himself. That's what it means to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It means we hear the message about Jesus and we realize that we are dealing with God himself. For us and for the people Paul is writing to, seeing Jesus means hearing the message of Jesus and believing it. So yes, Paul is aware of the spiritual blindness all around him. He knows that the message by itself can't bring life. But he keeps preaching and sharing the message because that's what God uses to bring life. Certainly no one will have their eyes opened if Paul starts preaching about his own power. So in verse 5, Paul says he goes on pointing to Jesus. He serves men and women not by giving them gimmicks, not by giving them a more palatable message. He serves them by preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. This is what Paul preaches because this message is God's means of bringing new life. Paul's been very clear about the glory of our message, it's a precious treasure. And now Paul is going to be equally clear about the lack of glory in those who carry this treasure. In verses 7 to 15, he describes the clay jars, inglorious messengers. Inglorious just means without glory. Paul is saying that the glory belongs to the message. None of it belongs to the clay pots that carry the message. And we are the clay pots. Today, the equivalent of a jar of clay might be a plastic milk carton or an aluminium Coke can. Clay jars might be used as fancy ornaments today in our houses, but in the ancient world, they were just throwaway. In fact, archaeologists regularly turn up whole rubbish heaps of clay pots. They were dirt cheap to produce, they were pretty fragile, and they were not terribly attractive looking. And therefore, they were expendable. They had no value in and of themselves. Any value came from the wine or the oil or whatever it was that you put in the jar. And Paul says, we are like clay jars. And we are like clay jars for a reason. Verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Life-changing things can happen when we share the message of Jesus. And Paul says, that's why we're weak and fragile and unremarkable. It's to make it obvious that all the power is God's. Someone has said, Paul is not the powerhouse. He's only the place where the power is exhibited. Or to put it another way, we are weak for a reason, that God's power might be displayed. Paul goes on to describe his own weakness. 
And he describes how God's power is displayed in the midst of Paul's weakness. In verses 8 and 9, he lists four pairs. The first element in each pair shows human weakness. And the second element shows divine power. He says, we, meaning Paul, are hard-pressed on every side. That's human weakness. But not crushed. It's because God's power is sustaining Paul. We are perplexed, but not in despair. This is actually a play on words. We could translate it, we are at a loss, but not utterly at a loss. Paul is at an end of his human power. He's at a loss. But God's power is keeping him going. He's not utterly at a loss. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Yes, Paul's enemies are having a go at him, but God has not abandoned him. He's struck down, but not destroyed. Why does God choose weak people like us to share his glorious message? He does it so the world will know the glory and power don't belong to us. They belong to the God who can work through weak people like us. Within this fellowship, there are many difficult circumstances. Many of you feel hard-pressed, or at a loss, or persecuted, or struck down. For some of us, it might be because of quite minor things. But for others, it's major things. It might not always be things that are pressing in on us from the outside. It might be our own physical weakness or mental weakness. It might be some character weakness in ourselves. Unless our heads are buried deep in the sand, there will be things in our lives that remind us of our weakness. And even if our own lives are going wonderfully, we probably have family members who are spiritually blind. That reminds us of our weakness. We can't open their eyes. We are clay pots. We are inglorious messengers. And we're entrusted with a glorious message. And that is fully in line with God's plan. We are weak for a reason. That God's power might be displayed. And God does keep us going. He does give us strength when we thought we had no strength left. And he does use us to minister to others, both to witness and to encourage others. Look at verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. What does it mean to carry around in our body the death of Jesus? Well, Jesus' life was one long death. In order to be born, Jesus had to die to the blessings of life in heaven. In Philippians, Paul says, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus went from the throne of heaven to an animal's feeding trough. 
Then as Jesus grew, he died to human popularity and position. He was a carpenter who became a traveling preacher. He didn't own a home. He didn't even own a donkey. Everything Jesus used, he had to borrow. He was hated and misunderstood. He was willfully misunderstood. And then finally, he experienced a horrible physical death. But that physical death came at the end of a life that was one long death. And here Paul says, if you and I belong to Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus, our lives will be like his in some degree. As we go through struggles and suffering, we are in some degree carrying around in our body the death of Jesus. So the things that you're facing are not accidents. They're not bad luck. They're not because God has forgotten you. Your struggles don't mean that you're one of God's less useful servants. No, they're part of what it means to carry around in your body the death of Jesus. And it all has a purpose. There's a reason for it. In verse 10, it is so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What does that mean? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. God showed his power by overcoming the grave. He brought his son out the other side of death. And when men and women saw the resurrected Jesus, they glorified God. They acknowledged that God's power was at work. Now, you and I are never going to die for the sin of the world. That's already been done. But if we are following Jesus, then our lives will include a measure of death. We've spoken about that. But our lives will also include a measure of God's power that brings us out the other side of death. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians. He assures the Ephesians of God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that trouble or pain that you're going through, One of the reasons you're going through it is so that God's power will be seen when he brings you through it. That death that you're facing will enable God's life to be revealed in you. That was true in Jesus' life. And Paul says it will be true in the lives of Jesus' followers. No doubt there are many other things that we could say about suffering. Mike will be talking more about suffering this evening. But here, Paul focuses on this one aspect. It's very specific to Christians. We are weak for a reason, that God's power might be displayed. And I think most of us know the reality of this. We've all seen Christians who go through terrible things but who also show a brightness and a God-glorifying attitude in the midst of those terrible things. We know people like that. Some of the most glowing Christians are the ones who have suffered the most. 
And they're not glowing because of their own strength. It's because God's power is at work in them. So it's not a coincidence when suffering Christians seem to be the most God-glorifying Christians. It's due to God's life being shown in the midst of their death. Please don't listen to this and think, well, I suppose I should never admit to feeling overwhelmed because then people won't see God's power. I'd better pretend that I'm coping with everything. That would be to completely miss Paul's point. Paul regularly admits that he's not coping. Back in chapter 1, he said that in Asia, he was under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. That's the Apostle Paul. He was happy to admit that he was not coping. If you'd been in Paul's home group, I don't think you would have come home saying, well, Paul really has it together. Paul puts us all to shame. No, Paul admitted that he couldn't cope. But then he did cope. He came through the dark tunnels of life. And so those who knew Paul could only conclude, well, it was God who brought him through. We all know that Paul didn't have it in himself. The only reason for you and me to try and hide our weakness is because we want to be seen as strong. We want to be glorified as people who can cope with whatever life throws at us. But Paul didn't want to impress people with his own strength. He wanted them to know about God's strength. So let's be willing to admit our own weakness. And then God will get the glory when he makes us strong. Look at the result of this in verse 12. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Yes, Paul has just said that Jesus' life is at work in him too. But here he means the death that I experience and God's sustaining power that I experience are a powerful witness to others. So yes, Paul says, I die. I go through difficulties. But the result is life for those who are watching me. As I die and as God brings me through it, Others turn to God and they receive new life in Jesus. Death is at work in me, Paul says, but life is at work in those who are watching me. Paul is encouraging us to ask, not how can God let this happen to me, but rather to ask, how can my experience be used to bring others to worship God? This is important because some of us have no difficulty being open about our troubles. But we never seem to get around to giving glory to God for his help in our troubles. Depending on our personality, we will either refuse to talk about our troubles or we'll do nothing but talk about our troubles. But our aim has to be, yes, to be open about our troubles, but ultimately to point to the God who is sustaining us in our troubles. 
If we never get that far, then we're just wallowing in our difficulties. God brings life to others out of Paul's struggles. And that leads Paul to say, we have reasons to speak, despite our weakness. Verse 13, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. When Paul mentions speaking here, he means speaking the good news about Jesus. That through Jesus, God's glory is displayed. We receive righteousness, freedom, and transformation. And Paul quotes from Psalm 116. Neville read that for us earlier. In that psalm, the psalmist talks about a time of death in his life. He says, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. We don't know the circumstances, but it's not hard to see how Paul identified with this particular psalm. The words are very similar to what we've heard from Paul himself. And the psalmist goes on to tell about God's deliverance. He says, when I was in great need, he saved me. But the part that Paul quotes is, I believed, therefore I have spoken. In other words, it's his faith in God that causes him to share the message of Jesus. Everything in and around Paul's life may be falling apart. It's very obvious that Paul himself is a clay pot. He's fragile and he's not very impressive. He's an inglorious messenger. But Paul believes in God's power. And so he shares the glorious message. He might not see a way out of his troubles, but he believes in God's power. And so he speaks. Maybe some of our hesitancy to speak is because we are not quite sure about God's power and faithfulness to us. We don't really believe, and so we don't really speak. But Paul gives us two reasons for speaking up. First, in verse 14, our belief in the resurrection. He says, We speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Here, Paul is looking ahead to the final resurrection. The New Testament takes Jesus' resurrection as the guarantee of ours. In his first letter to Corinth, Paul called Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection that's to come. At harvest time, the first fruits were presented to God. They were a foretaste of what was to come. And so Paul speaks up because he knows that he too will be raised. And he wants others to be part of this harvest of life. When Paul talks about Jesus... He believes that he's talking to men and women who have the potential to be raised from the death of sin. And you and I need to develop this perspective ourselves. I need to realize that my neighbors have the potential to be raised. So does that person who sits across from you at work. 
so do your elderly relatives. And if we begin to believe this, then we will speak up about Jesus. Finally, Paul gives a second reason for speaking up. It's our desire to see God glorified. In verse 15, all this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. When Paul says all this, he means all that he does and all that happens to him, including his preaching and his suffering. None of it is a waste of time. It brings benefit by displaying God's grace. And Paul says, as more and more people see that grace at work, more and more of them praise God, and God is glorified. And that's what Paul wants, so he speaks up. Paul keeps on sharing the glorious message. He shares it so that God might be glorified. We have reasons to speak up, despite our weakness. We started thinking about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Precious treasure in clay jars. And Paul has told us that we're like clay jars. And not only do we carry a valuable treasure, sometimes it's our brokenness that enables others to discover the treasure. We're going to sing a final song that reminds us that God takes the fragile things to show the greatness of his love. It's a song that's based on these verses, treasure. So let's stand and sing this together.